This is Katie Myers, and you're listening to WMMT's Mountain Talk. Today, I'm bringing you a book talk with labor journalist and author Kim Kelly. Kelly's new book, Fight Like Hell, is a series of untold stories about the labor movements that brought us our rights in the workplace. And she sat down with me at the Red Spotted Newt bookstore in Hazard last week to chat about what she uncovered and what these stories of disabled, LGBT, Black, and immigrant workers mean for us today. Hello, I'm Katie Myers, and I'm the reporter at WMMT. Um, So you might have seen or heard my stuff in different places on the radio on 88.7 FM. Um, But um, we're so grateful here that that Kim Kelly has come here. You know, I think it's, you know, national reporters don't always come to Appalachia and visit us and speak to us. And so, you know, it's always really great when folks come here. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Um, and then she's going to read a little bit from um, her book, Fight Like Hell, which is the untold history of American labor. So Kim <laughs> Kelly is an independent journalist, author, and organizer. She's been a regular labor columnist for Teen Vogue since 2018, and her writing on labor, class, politics, and culture has appeared in The New Republic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Baffler, The Nation, and The Columbia Journalism Review, and Esquire, among many others. Kelly has also worked as a video correspondent for More Perfect Union, The Real News Network, and Means TV. Previously, she was the heavy metal editor at Noisy, Vice's Music Vertical, and was an original member of the Vice Union. So, we love the rank and file. Um, A third-generation union member, she is a member of the Industrial Workers of the World's Freelance Journalist Union, as well as a member and elected council person for the Writers Guild of America East. She was born in the heart of the South Jersey Pine Barrens, and currently lives in Philadelphia with a hard-working man, a couple of taxidermy bears, and way too many books. <laughs> that's the, I had to have that at the, uh, at the end. I was like, I gotta humanize it a little bit, let them know how weird I am. But yeah, thank you so much for coming out. This is really lovely. I'm excited to be here in Hazard and in this beautiful bookstore. Y'all are so lucky to have a community resource like this. And it's, it's just really lovely to be here. I really have enjoyed my travels through Appalachia. I just came from Charleston a couple hours ago and I'm heading to Knoxville tomorrow and it's it's cool. The world is so much bigger than New York and LA and it's just a privilege to be able to see some of it as I'm trying to get the word out on my little, well not so little, book. <laughs> so I'm gonna read a couple pages, maybe more than a couple pages, from Chapter 5, which is called The Miners, and there's some familiar things in there for folks who know a little bit about coal mining history in Appalachia, but I also tried to mix it up and write about women and black coal miners and indigenous and Latino coal miners to show just kind of the, the scope of all the folks who have been involved in this industry here and in the rest of the country with other types of metals and materials. Like it's it's coal mining isn't a monolith and mining isn't a monolith and labor is not a monolith so I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite people in the book his name is Ida May and I'm also going to continue reading a couple of pages after that because there's an eastern Kentucky tie-in here and I thought it would be cool to just kind of bring it home a little bit so this is from page 79 chapter 5 Ida Mae Stoll always knew she was different. Born with what she'd later call a twisted-up leg, 
The coal miner's daughter used leg, used leg braces to get around her hometown of Sayo, Ohio in her youth. Even when she was a grade schooler, the independent streak that would make her famous was already on full display. She refused to be shamed for her disability by her classmates or anyone else. And as she later told the Chicago Tribune, at just seven years old, Ida Mae declared that she was finished with being disrespected at school. Ain't nobody gonna laugh at me. Newspaper reports disagree on exactly what age Stahl first entered the mines herself. Some say 12, others say 8, and after her legend had grown, a few even claimed a tender age of 6. Regardless of what the calendar said, it's a fact that she was only a little girl when she started following her father underground to help dig coal. At first she was a helper, carrying her dad's lantern and pushing the coal cart ahead at his side. But as she got older and stronger, she became a formidable miner in her own right, regularly hauling out six or seven carts a day for her $2 daily wage. A teenage stoll worked alongside her husband in a small Eastern Ohio country bank drift mine, an independent operation dug out of the Appalachian Hills by hand. By 1933, in her mid-30s, she'd become part owner of a mine near Jewett, Ohio, a first for a woman in the mining business. Things were going pretty well for her and her family. The mortgage was paid, the kids were thriving, and Stoll was doing what she liked best, avoiding women's work around the house and digging coal. Photos of her from that period show a tall, statuesque woman with muscled forearms, a steely squint, and a determined set to her jaw. But in late January 1934, word kicked up about federal mine inspectors sniffing around Ida May's business. She saw a mortal threat to everything she had worked for over the past two decades. Stoll wasn't, wasn't working alone in the mines anymore. Desperate for labor, operators had been forced by the Great Depression to, at least temporarily, suspend their prejudices and allow women underground to work alongside the men. Though Appalachian women like Stoll had been quietly working in family-owned mines for decades, Ohio state law forbade the weaker sex from engaging in a host of manual labor jobs coal mining included. Stahl was both pioneer and outlaw, and she knew that the lawmen would find her eventually. When that day finally came in early February, her female co-workers hid while Stoll prepared to give their visitor proper welcome. I knew he was coming to put me out, so I put some rotten eggs in my coal cart, she later explained. I started throwing and chased that inspector out of the mine to his car and covered the car besides. I really stunk him up. Ida May's valiant efforts notwithstanding, James Derry, chief of Ohio's Bureau of Mines, responded to her stunt with an order that she leave her job at once. Stoll appealed the order and took the fight to court, where the press dubbed her the Amazon of the coal pits, and seemed to regard her with a mixture of derision and awe. Her stern, snappy one-liners during interviews helped solidify her reputation as a woman it was best not to cross. One choice soundbite. I could show that mine inspector a thing or two when it comes to muscle. Ultimately, Stoll's ownership stake proved to be the determining factor, and she was allowed to return to work in 1935. Despite the headaches and the hassles, Stoll liked her job and was furious at the implication that her time would be better spent in the kitchen doing what she termed baby work. Moreover, she was good at it. A 1935 article marveled, any miner in the district will admit that she's his equal physically, and Stoll herself took pride in her ability to outwork her male counterparts. She didn't mind the hard labor, the dirt, or the coal dust. To her, it was vastly preferable to a more traditional life indoors. 
Overall, overalls, boots, and a miner's cap suit me better than silks, slippers, and a butterfly hat, she told one reporter. My face gets black, but I prefer coal dust to a powder puff. And I'd rather use a crosscut saw than a golf club. That may sound unladylike, but every woman to her own desires. Mine is digging coal. Stoll's mining career ended in 1934. Her husband died that year, and without her partner by her side, she found she lost her taste for coal. She spent the next 40 years in peaceful obscurity, caring for her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and scraping out a living on her farm in Sayo. True to form, she prided herself on her self-sufficiency and ability, ability to work well into her old age. In one of her last interviews, she made it plain that her fighting spirit had never faded. I still got my strength, she told the reporters. Ain't afraid of man or woman, and I can still find cold on these hills. Ida Mae Stoll died on April 23, 1980, at the age of 84. Stoll may have been the nation's best-known lady coal miner, but she'd be far from the last. It did take several more decades and a federal ruling before women workers were legally, though not warmly, welcomed into the coal mines. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, which outlawed employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and President Johnson's 1967 Executive Order 11375, which strengthened enforcement of the policy barring hiring discrimination on the basis of sex, removed the last major legal hurdles for women who wanted to work in the mines. Diana Baldwin and Anita Cherry of Kentucky were at the forefront of the mid-century battle to integrate women workers into Appalachia's coal mines, and are often erroneously cited as America's first women coal miners. One imagines that the ghost of Ida Mae Stoll would like a word about that. But they were trailblazers in their own right, as the first women members of the United Mine Workers of America hired to work inside a mine. The year prior, four women had applied for work underground at the Clinchfield Coal Company in Cleveland, Virginia, igniting a debate within the local mining community over whether or not they should be accepted. Reactions were mixed, but the women themselves held firm. The people who say a woman's place is in the home are the people who can afford to. Catherine Tompa, one of the eight applicants, said in a 1973 issue of the United Mine Workers Journal, We want these jobs for one reason. Money. We work hard now, and we expect to be given the same jobs as the men have. If we can't do it, we'll admit we're wrong. The company simply refused to respond to their applications, and without the support of the union, who feared layoffs and whose seniority rules dictated that UMWA members be hired for whatever jobs were available, the women were put off. Their mission may have been thwarted by outside forces, but times had changed and attitudes had shifted too far to keep the dam from breaking. As Tampa said in 1973, when she was planning to send in her application to the mine, I'd been watching a show on television the night before. There was one of those women's lib people on from New York. When I thought of men making all that money in the mines, I figured we could too. And less than a year later, two of Tampa's like-minded Southern sisters would prove her right and finally succeed in kicking open a door that had been wedged shut for centuries. Diana Baldwin, a 25-year-old former hospital receptionist, and Anita Cherry, a 39-year-old former practical nurse, began working at Beth Alcorn Coal Corporation's Mine 29 in Jenkins, Kentucky in 1973. They applied for the same reason that most coal miners of any gender apply. The pay was good and they needed the money. 
several of their family members who'd previously worked in the mines tried to discourage them from applying. They, t they thought tales of bloody accidents on the job and the black lung disease that had stolen their breath would put the notion to rest. But these women were resolute. They both had children to feed and bills to pay, and as Baldwin told a New York Times reporter in 1974, we can make more than twice as much money in the mines as we could at the hospital. In 2016, Baldwin's daughter, Lori, revealed how difficult the work environment had been for her mother, especially in the beginning. I can remember times when my uncles had to take her to work because she was getting threats. Threats of being tarred in the mines, she said. But she was determined. She had three kids to support, and that's what she did. <coughs> like Ida Mae Stull before her, Baldwin developed a particular aff affinity for the work, spending two decades working underground before eventually becoming a safety inspector for the Mine Safety and Health Administration. And she found no shame in the profession or the implications of being a woman doing men's work. Quite the opposite, in fact. I was the first woman to operate a shuttle car with coal, she told the Associated Press in 1963, 1973. There was one man who stood at one end and one who stood at the other, and he says, Do you know you're making history? That thrilled me to death. To be continued. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with that. I, I, I cross that, that bridge. Very poorly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for reading that really neat anecdote piece of history. This book is full of so many little like pieces of history that you just you know from the from the corners dug up from the from the corners of uh, the labor movement. Um, I would love to go back a little bit and just talk a little bit about you. Um, you came up from the you know sort of the heavy metal journalism, music journalism, and um, came into labor journalism. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your process of entering labor journalism and, and what that's been like for you. Sure. I mean, it's a, a classic story, you know. Girl writes about cannibal corpse on the internet, then <laughs> eventually ends up being, you know, a labor reporter. Um, but yeah, I spend most of my life in the music business, specifically the heavy metal world, which is kind of why I look like this. Um, and. I never really thought that joining a union would be an option. You know, I'm from a union family. My dad and my uncles, my grandma, like, it was all steel workers, coal, uh, not coal miners. I still have them on the brain from being in Charleston. Um, steel workers, construction workers, teachers. Um, but I never, I knew that unions were a good thing and that they protected our family, but I'd always wanted to be a writer. And I thought, well, that's good for them, but there's no union for writers. And eventually I figured out, oh, there is. Uh, I was working in like 2015, I was working at Vice, this media company based in New York, as their heavy metal editor. And uh, about two weeks after I got hired, a couple of my coworkers pulled me aside and said, hey, we're thinking about unionizing. What do you think about that? And I was like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> we were getting paid nothing, getting treated real bad. There was no transparency. There was no stability. It was it was a cool job, but it was a really hard job. We were being exploited. So we organized, and we started putting together our committees and started bargaining, and we won a really great contract. And then we organized 500 other people in the building, and we helped them get a good contract, too. And I ended up spending so much time being in all these meetings and committees and I, I joked to someone recently that labor became my new favorite band 
because I, <laughs> I was spending so much more time in union halls than I was at heavy metal shows. And I was okay with it because I kind of figured, okay, music will, has been there for me my whole life. It'll always be there. But my energy and my interest is being pulled in this direction. So maybe I should follow that. Um, and while I was still, you know, keeping up with my day job, writing about death metal on the internet, I was also freelancing because because I kind of set a precedent before we had the union. I wasn't getting paid very much, so I would write about other stuff or other places to make ends meet. And I found myself pitching more and more workers' rights and labor stories because I finally felt like after spending a couple years, you know, talking to labor organizers and reading labor history and getting to know labor law and bargaining, I felt like I finally had a leg to stand on. Like I'd been interested in these things from just a history nerd perspective, but I thought, okay, maybe I'm allowed to write about this now. And I started writing for, uh, for Teen Vogue and a couple other places. And that got a bunch of attention because this was about 2017 or so, when Teen Vogue wasn't necessarily the, uh, the vanguard of the revolution that it is now. <laughs> People weren't expecting to see articles at labor unions in this publication that was geared primarily towards young women. And I started writing a couple. And then I was like, hey, you should let me do a column and let me do this all the time. And they said, oh, okay, sure. And like four years later, I think I still owe them something next week. So that worked out. And I just started writing more and more stories like that for more places. And by the time I got laid off from Vice in 2019, I was at a point where I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to try and do this. Like, I think this is what I want to be doing now. And I threw myself into it. And then about a year later, I signed the contract to write this. So I think it worked out okay. <laughs> you know. Seems like it worked out pretty good. <laughs> I, it's, yeah, I <laughs> couldn't have planned it better myself. So how did you end up writing this book? Yeah, I've had, it's like everything I do is sort of a convoluted process. But the short answer is that I, I'd been working, I'd had an agent for a couple of years already. I'd been working with them. Originally, I was going to write a book about heavy metal. And then I was going to write some essays about where I grew up in the Pine Barrens. But it became kind of apparent that labor and labor history and people's history is really where my interest was. And that was what people were beginning to recognize me for with my own work. So when he's like, ah, we, should, we should work on a proposal, what do you think? I'm like, okay, I think I have an idea. And it, we'd send it out to publishers, and a couple of them were like, yeah, we're interested in that. And then we picked one, and they're like, okay, you have a year to write this. Uh, call us when you're done. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll figure out how to write a book. Jesus. And this was in, I think, March, maybe March or April 2020. So like I was telling someone else earlier that, you know, I had all these plans. I'm going to go to this labor archive and go interview these people and go to this city, visit this. I didn't visit nothing. I stayed home and I <laughs> went to the library and I did a whole lot of zooming and calling and digging around and researching in other ways and I pieced together what turned into this book and I think it's kind of unique in the way it's organized and the focus because I was basically left to my own devices for like a year and this is the kind of history book that I like and I was like well no one's telling me not no one's really telling me what to do they're just like yeah write this book that you think is a cool idea and I did. And it still feels kind of wild, even though it's been out for about six months. Um, I was really, really super lucky, too, because I had a really good agent, and my publishers were, like, pretty supportive, and they kind of let me 
do what I wanted to. I did have to fight him on a couple little things, like one time an editor took out some stuff about Palestine, like they took out a couple things to try and, you know, round off some sharp edges. Like, no, 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 put them back. I'm, I'm prickly and that's why I want to stay. But yeah, it was really fun in a way because I'm a giant nerd and I love learning about history and talking to people and I love writing. So I just did it for like a hundred thousand words and then hit send and was like, okay, I hope people like this thing. Well, I mean, this book is full of, it covers so, so much ground from like workers who, you know, who fought for disability rights to sex workers to coal miners to, you know, so many edges of the labor movement. And I feel like, especially prior to a lot of these sort of retail and, and food service kind of labor movements and that we've seen in the past couple of years, there was a sort of sense that, that unions were for industrial workers, um, maybe. And so, you know, I, I'm wondering if you could you know, I'm sure you made a lot of discoveries, you know, personally and while writing this. I'm wondering if you could tell us, like, one of your, maybe, your, you know, favorite person or anecdote or discovery that you made while writing this book. Oh, boy. There are, there are a lot. I mean, I love everybody. Well, not everybody. There's some assholes in there. But um, I, I love all the, all the cool, interesting people. But um, I was really happy that I got to write about a woman named Lucy Parsons. She was a very complicated character, uh, and she's not. She doesn't necessarily get mentioned in a lot of mainstream labor histories because she was also like this anarchist revolutionary. She was a black woman. She was really the, one of the most infamous women in America for a while during the uh, early 1900s, and her husband was caught up in uh, the Haymarket Affair, where basically the government executed. A, a handful of people who had not done anything wrong except have leftist political views and she was also like a dressmaker and was involved in organizing seamstresses and garment workers and she helped co-found uh, the industrial workers of the world like she was just kind of everywhere in that way that I feel like some people were able to do in the early 1900s like you could live such a big life and uh, she was a complicated character, too, because even though she was, as a historian Jacqueline Jones discovered in her magisterial book on Lucy's life, she was born uh, into slavery and in Virginia and then ended up in Texas after emancipation. But throughout her life, she never claimed her black identity. She told people she was a Spanish maiden or said she was indigenous. She had all these different kind of identities that she would pull on because I think it seems like it was perhaps easier to identify in that way in the spaces she was working in predominantly white spaces spaces where she was trying to organize white factory workers and she there's all these interesting things about her life that just kind of go to show that even some of our heroes even people who do incredible things and do good work and have a huge impact they're not perfect, they're complicated, they're human, they're flawed. Sometimes they do things that we do not agree with or say things that kind of suck. But being able to, to write about a character like her in the book, because she was complicated, because like I love so much about her story, but also some of it I'm like, wow, that was, I don't know about that one, girl. So <laughs> there, there's a few characters, there's a bunch of characters like that in there, where it's someone who's a historic figure, who's really interesting and did really important work, but was flawed or complicated or just you needed a little bit more time to dig into who they really were. And it was really fun to do that in this book because I, I write profiles about people like that for Teen Vogue sometimes or other places, but to have the space to really get into the contradictions 
and complications of her life. Like, that's, I guess that's what books are for, where you have a little bit more space to get into things. So shout out to Lucy, though. She was still one of the, the real MVPs at the end of the day. Shout out to Lucy. <laughs> yeah. I, one of the things, like, you you embrace complexity a lot in this book. Like, um, you you talk about people who, you know, they were, they were full people, they were complex people. You also talk about how the labor movement is, is a complex beast and, and didn't always accommodate everybody um, all the time. And people had to fight for their rights even within the labor movement. And so I'm wondering if you could, you know, just chat a little bit about that and like just what what are some things the labor movement maybe even needs to work on now? Yeah, one thing that became really apparent while I was researching and putting this all together was that uh, there's always been this impetus from employers definitely and sometimes even within like the leadership structures of organized labor to divide people and in the employer's case, they wanted to divide people to keep us weaker, to keep black and white workers apart, or men and women, or in or you know Spanish-speaking workers, English-speaking workers. Like there's always been an other, and they would use that to try to break unions and split up strikes and just uh, make it more difficult for workers to build any kind of real community or solidarity. And in terms of union leadership, I mean there is there has been throughout history this kind of like. Uh, I'm trying to think, like, almost jingoistic or just sort of selfish idea. We need to take care of our people, our guys. It's why back in the 1800s, the American Federation of Labor supported the Chinese Exclusion Act because they didn't want that wave of new immigrants coming over and taking their guys' jobs. Or we saw something similar with the Bracero program in the 1940s and in the AFL's refusal to organize Spanish-speaking Latino and indigenous workers throughout certain points in history like this it's it's never just been all hunky-dory right there's always been someone who's left out and even now you know uh, union unions are not a monolith there's different types of unions different types of union leaders some are more progressive than others some are more in tune with issues like racial justice and like queer and trans liberation and understanding that we then we say an injury to one an injury to all we have to actually mean it um, one of the chapters in my book that was really important for me to write, and I was really, really happy that I had the chance to put it in a labor history to show that these folks are part of labor history and always have been, is chapter 13, which is about incarcerated workers in prison labor. And they're obviously like people who are in prison who work and go to a job and don't get paid for it, get paid next to nothing. That's a labor issue. There are people that that are not able to strike. They're not able to march on the boss. They're not able to do hardly anything that other workers in this country are able to do because they don't have that right. There's actually, as I found out, and it's, it's in the book, there's a, there's a 1977 Supreme Court decision, Jones versus the North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union, that expressly laid out that incarcerated people do not have the, join, uh, the right to join or organize a union. That right was just pulled away. And that hamstrung a lot of really interesting and dynamic organizing that had been happening at that time in the 70s. So even now, you're not necessarily going to see the AFL-CIO or whatever labor group of choice jumping in to support prisoners' rights movements or the fact that there is an ongoing prison strike in Alabama right now where I just was a couple days ago. And I don't think that's right. And I thought, you know, I had this opportunity to pull this together and kind of show 
you know, what it looks like when people are left out and how that helps the boss and how that weakens the movement. And yeah, that's, that's basically the, the best example I suppose I can give right now, especially because I was just in Alabama and we haven't heard a peep from our, our labor leaders who care so much about workers but make distinctions between which workers get our support and solidarity and who, which ones don't. Yeah, that's a really, you know, and that's an interesting example to, to bring up here too because um, we've had, you know, a sort of a, a strategy here by our our leaders in in Kentucky, our political leaders, to bring prisons to to this region for economic development. So it's definitely been a loaded loaded issue here. Oh, right. um, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I picked an easy answer, but right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've you've reported on a lot of different labor movements um, over the years. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind telling me, like. What are some of the key similarities between some of these labor movements and what, you know, what can people sort of globally, you know, in labor struggle do to support one another? Yeah, I spent the last couple of years focused pretty much primarily on the book and also this one specific strike. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute uh, in Alabama. I spent a lot of time in Alabama, even though I live in South Philly. Um, but yeah, the, the thing and, it, and I, I kind of write about in the book and try and hope it comes through in the book is that there really are these common themes and common threads, whether you're, it's, you know, the strippers on strike uh, at the Star Garden Topless Dancers Club in North Hollywood, or Philadelphia Art Museum workers who just got a, just ratified an agreement the other day after a two week strike, or the coal miners that strike in Alabama, or Chipotle and Home Depot workers who are forming their own independent unions. It's that the only way that we really win and build real solidarity and actually push the movement forward is by doing so in an inclusive manner. Uh, there's a story I always like to tell when I'm, when I'm doing these kinds of things because I just think it's cool and I think it's really illustrative of what I'm trying to say. Um, now, bear with me, but go back to 1946, uh, the Great Sugar Strike. And this is a time uh, when Hawaii, the islands, their primary economy was, was based in sugar, sugar cane and the sugarcane plantations were owned by white European men who lived in the mainland, and the people who worked on them were this uh, vast array of uh, workers from various Asian countries, whether it's China, Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Puerto Rican workers, some black workers from the mainland, Native Hawaiians. It's a big multiracial, multi-ethnic, multilingual mix of people, and they're unionized, but a tool that the bosses had used for uh, during years previously, during previous strikes, was the fact that, you know, folks speak different languages. Uh, on the plantations, workers were housed in segregated camps. So like Japanese workers would be here. Korean workers would be here. There's an active effort to keep them apart and from building any kind of real relationships with one another. And that manifested in really negative ways in, in previous labor conflicts when, for example, Japanese workers would go on strike, and then the bosses would bring in Filipino workers to act as strike breakers. And they would pit different races and ethnicities against one another. And it got to be a point in 1946 when they're looking at another big strike up against the Big Five, which is like basically like five Jeff Bezoses, but in sugar at that time. And the organizers realized, okay, we can't let them split us up this time. We gotta figure this out. And what they did was they recruited community leaders to come out and kind of give them advice and help them organize the strike. 
they brought in tons of interpreter, uh, interpreters to make sure that everyone understood what was happening and felt heard and felt like they were part of the effort, whether it was, you know, Japanese or Tagalog or Ilocano. Like, there were a lot of different languages and dialects at play, and they made sure everyone felt heard. They built strike kitchens and invited the different types of workers to, to cook for one another. That's how they found out that um, the Filipino, or the Japanese workers really liked the way Filipino workers made rice, so they got stuck with doing all the rice, which I thought was just kind of a little cute human detail. But basically, they built this real multiracial, multilingual, multigender solidarity, and they went on strike together, and it worked, and they won. They won, like, the biggest raise they'd had in 20 years. Like, they made a huge impact. They had 77,000 people in the streets. And the reason they're able to win is because they recognize their differences were a strength, and they organized together, and they showed that they showed everyone we're equal, we all matter, we're here together, and they won. And it just makes me think about another event that happened way later, while I was writing this book in Staten Island, when the workers at the Amazon facility there they formed the Amazon Labor Union, and. They were, it was a prominently black and brown working class young folks who were organizing them, and they used the same tactics. They had people who spoke different languages reaching out to coworkers, making people feel heard. They shared food in the parking lot, whether it was jollof rice or barbecue. They just made it very clear, like, we're in this together. They can't split us apart because we, we are us, like, we're the union. And they won too. And it's almost like there's something there that we can take from that, right? <laughs> Uh, and that's something that I hope pops out when, when you read through the book. Just the very basic but important principle that we are so much stronger together. You know, splitting each other up, giving into these divisions, that's just doing the boss's work for him. Yeah, and that's so much of our regional labor history is rooted in that. You know, our coal camps organized across like linguistic and ethnic lines all the time. Um, so it's, yeah, that's a cool little anecdote, I think very relevant to some of our history. And like, sort of going into the, you know, the coal industry and, and your recent work and reporting on it, um, I, I think, you know, I'm sure our audience would love to hear and I would love to hear from you just, you know, some of your, some of your recent reporting work and some of the issues you're covering right now. Yeah, like, like I mentioned, the only time I left my little office in South Philly was to go down to Brookwood, Alabama where over a thousand coal miners have been on strike since April 1st, 2020. That's 18, 18 months and counting. It's the longest active strike in the U.S. It's the longest strike in Alabama history. It might be inching up on being the longest coal miner strike in U.S. history. And I started covering it almost by accident because I was down there already covering um, efforts to organize an Amazon warehouse down there, like 40 minutes up the road in Bessemer. And I happened to be there one day, and I heard something about, oh, coal miners are on strike. I was like, oh, cool. Like, that, like that's badass. You know, coal miners are on strike. As a labor history nerd, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I want to see that. And I got some donuts, and I went down there, and I started talking with some of the guys in the picket line and got the story. It's like, oh, wow, this, this is a huge deal. Like, this is a multiracial, multigender group of blue-collar workers in Alabama who are on strike against this Wall Street-backed, like, venture capital-rich coal companies trying to squeeze them and starve them out like that's a huge story so I thought oh, okay I got to get down there and cover this like this is going to be the next big thing and then it wasn't and it became really difficult over the ensuing months and years to get people to pay attention to that strike and to their struggle and what was happening and I developed all kinds of theories about why that is 
I think some of it is people being dismissive of labor movements and workers' rights movements in the South, especially the Deep South. I think some of it is a lack of sympathy for folks who work in that particular industry, or maybe because some of a, a lot of the workers are more conservative. They're not the most progressive block of people, politically speaking, but they're people that deserve to make more than 20 bucks an hour to go 2,000 feet underground into a methane-filled coal mine to stay there for 12 hours and to see their family a couple times a month. You know, there, there's a lot of different interesting layers to it. And I just found myself so compelled by the story, by those layers and by the people that I kept coming back. I kept coming back and I kept coming back. I was there on Saturday. <laughs> and I've just kind of, I, I just really want them to win. And I think they deserve to win. And I hope they win soon because it is a fascinating story. Like I could write a whole book just about them. And I'm really hoping that we get to the victory party so I can have my happy ending. Um, but through the course of that strike, I obviously get to know like coal miners, black lung is something that comes up, especially when you have some of the older folks. But something that I was finding as I was talking to folks, and especially because I went to uh, the UMWA convention in Las Vegas a couple months ago in June, <coughs> uh, a representative from MSHA came out and started talking about this new initiative to cut down on silica exposure. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like, that seems, I haven't really heard that much about that. What's going on with that? And I found out, and this was new to me, obviously not new to people that know about these things, but the idea that black lung is at a 25-year high and is impacting younger and younger people, and they're being, the disease is manifesting in more severe ways, way, way sooner. And that broke my heart. It's like, i got to find out more about this. And so my current reporting project I'm working on is that, is finding out what's going on, what's, why is this happening, how are the people it's impacting dealing with it, like... Is there anything people can do to help? How do we make this stop happening? Like, this is supposed to be a thing of the past. I mean, it should have never existed in the first place, but black lung disease is not something that we should be dealing with in 2022. And it's not something that I think people outside of the general coal community knows very much about. Like, when I tell people at home I'm working on this black lung thing, like, oh, God, that sounds awful. They still have that? Yeah, I interviewed a guy yesterday who's 42 years old who's already lost 20% of his lung capacity and has like the, the worst form. And he has three kids. He's a granddad and he's 42 years old and I'm 34. And just hearing about that, like, of course I'm gonna come back. Of course I have to talk to more people. I've ended up with this platform, which is a massive privilege. So I gotta use it because these folks aren't necessarily gonna be able to go on Twitter and be like, here's what's going on. But I can. And if I could spend months digging into this into this, and write a good story and, and break a few hearts and get people to pay attention, hopefully that'll help. You know, I'm from, I'm not from cold country. I'm from Jersey, but I'm from a really rural area. And my granddad was a steel worker and he died uh, kind of, well, to me, it was out of nowhere, but Sotelion won't get you like that. He died a couple months before I signed the contract for this. And he was like my favorite dude in the world. And I was his favorite too. And all he wanted was to see me do good. And I never got to show him this book because he died of what they call white lung. And having that little connection has just made me feel like I have, I got to use everything I got to get these stories out there. Even though I know I'm not from here. I know I don't have the kind of deep connection that folks from this area do, but I really care. And I hope that counts for something. Well, thank you so much for drawing attention to that issue. It's definitely a big one and it's not getting smaller. So, um, 
I'm wondering, you know, I think we're going to open up questions to the audience, but before we do that, do you, is there anything else that you would like to say that I didn't ask about? I think you did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, serotonin boost. Um, <laughs> yeah, and obviously yeah. you've done a really wonderful job reporting on these issues too, and you're one of the people I look to to see what's going on. Thank so you. I'm just really <laughs> glad to be here talking to you. Aww, so thanks. thank you for that work. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, everybody. Um, cool. Well, I think you all have been such a lovely audience listening so patiently and quietly, and I would love to hear you all talk. What, what questions do you have uh, for Kim about this book or work, anything, labor movement? Yeah. Someone's going to have to break the seal and be the first What's person. Next? What's next for you? Oh, this is actually, this. I've been like, I see you back there, brother. But, <laughs> I, um, I, I, ha I haven't made it like super public yet, but I'm working on a young reader's edition of this for oh. kids 10 and up. And I'm going to take like 10 people from it and like maybe get rid of a little bit of the blood and guts. But uh, yeah, and, and tell these stories to a younger audience. And hopefully I'll nice. get to, because I know a lot of folks involved with teachers unions who work at libraries. Hopefully I can get out there and kind of teach little, littler people about their history. Because it's their history too. I mean, God, in this book, there's people their age who were working in factories and in coal mines. So people's history is children's history, is labor history. It kind of wish it wasn't, but that's the thing about history. It's kind of, you know, <laughs> it's not always pretty, but I'm going to do that and then keep working on this black lung thing. And then I guess I'll have to write another big person book eventually <laughs> <laughs> and maybe take a break. I'm a little tired. <laughs> yeah. Looking at you, Tucker. bud. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Uh, I'm curious. I want to mix interests. Uh, because the music industry is such a weird <laughs> ecosystem on its own, uh, if you are either familiar with uh, unique organizing movements there in the past, or if you have theories on potential spaces where organizing could happen in the music industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was in Nashville a few days ago, I, I did an event at the American Federation of Musicians Union Hall. It's the only union hall I've ever been to that had a conversation pit and like a president with a ponytail and a guitar. <laughs> it was very cool. And they're really excited that a bunch of young people came out for, for my event because, you know, I think the AFM specifically has always been sort of focused on either symphony musicians or musicians in Nashville, just kind of a specific ecosystem, or folks in Vegas and Broadway, things like that. But they had a rehearsal studio, and they were talking to somebody younger about how you can come in here and you can use this. Like, we have benefits to offer. We're just not sure how to reach out to younger folks. And I think maybe that's a problem throughout labor, right? Like, how do you get a hold of the younger people that can really benefit from these resources and this community of support, but don't, don't necessarily think, like, well, I didn't think there was a union for writers until I stumbled over one. So that's, I think that's an option for some musicians. But there's also all these other issues because it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like gig work, right? Except you maybe get paid, but also maybe not, depending how well your show does. And if you're a roadie or a merch person, like I used to be, that's, I mean, good luck. Maybe you get a couple bucks, maybe you won't. Uh, there have been some interesting organizing efforts. I'm trying to remember the exact name. It's like United Allied Music Worker, something like that. You can find them on Twitter. And it's it's more of like a workers' rights group. They're not a official union but that's fine um of folks who work in the, in the independent music industry talking about how they can raise industry standards and advocate for one another around 
economic issues and social and political issues. And it's been interesting seeing that take off because it's it's hard to organize music, right? There's a lot going on. Music business is a, a nightmare most of the time. Though I also just, uh, another cool thing, like I, I recently wrote about it a little bit for Rolling Stone, uh, the first independent record label just unionized, Secretly Group. I can't remember uh, all the artists on it because I'm just like a, a metalhead caveman, but there's a bunch of like very popular indie rock artists on there. So that's a cool precedent too, that the folks who make the industry work are interested in organizing. Like I think there's a lot of potential there. And I think maybe a little piece of it is getting folks who are musicians, who are creative, who love what they do, to recognize that their labor also has value and that they're still workers and that they deserve to organize and win something too. So maybe there, I think there's a few different shifts that need to happen, but it does seem like there's some interesting conversations happening in that world. Uh, you mentioned that um, in the, the book, like the idea of these examples teaching everybody that like coming together is where our strength is. Um, are, what are the other kind of big takeaways and impacts you want the book to have for readers and American workers and American business owners and sure. there's, there's really just two other little basic points um, One the most basic possible point is that everyone deserves to be treated fairly You know, there's a lot of different types of people and workers in this book and that all oh, they've had interesting lives and like I talked about Lucy earlier or even about my coal miners in Alabama like Workers are complicated. Sometimes you might not agree with how they see the world or how they present themselves but they deserve to be treated like human beings and to be able to put food on their table and pay their bills, take care of their kids. That's something I had to kind of really learn to embrace when I started going down to Alabama because it was the first time really since my last protest I'd been around a whole lot of people that had such different political views from me. And I just had to dig into that, just that spirit of solidarity. Like, okay, like, I'm not sure about that hat, buddy, but you're not actively harming anyone right now. I'm not seeing you cause any harm or you're actively oppressing someone. If you say something, there, there's some lines here that if you cross, I'm going to tell you about it. But if you're just a guy who's trying to win this contract and trying to do good and trying to take care of your family, I can work with that. We can argue about the other stuff, but let's get you that contract first. So yeah, there's that. Everyone deserves a fair shot. And I guess the other main point is that, you know, the idea of the American dream that a lot of us have been sold has not applied to everyone. It's never been available to everyone. And it's important to recognize that people have had to deal with much different playing fields and that leveling those playing fields and bringing us all up to the same playing field and taking care of the people that started out on the bottom, had their, their you know knees knocked out from under them, like, that's important. That's how we get close to the world we all deserve. I think that acting as though everyone just started out, you know, everyone has an opportunity. This is America, bootstraps, all that. I mean, we all know that's not true. And the people that insist that that's the way things are, are willfully ignoring the reality. So I think it's just important when we're looking at history and looking at the past and looking at the future and the present is just to recognize, like, not everyone's had it the same. We need to make sure that we're bringing everyone up to where they all deserve to be. And hopefully that comes through too. Just like that equity, equality, whatever you want to call it. Just being real. 
about the struggles people have faced and what we all owe it to one another to get to a point where we're all okay. Also, solidarity is good. Those are the, those are the top ones. Who else got a question? Did I answer all of them? Did you answer all the questions? <laughs> I mean, Every question? Oh. Um, so I guess I'm surprised at um, how prominent um, organizers still are, I guess. And I, I don't know if it's because it's not something that's on my radar. I just don't hear a whole lot about it. Like, I guess Amazon's probably the last one that I've heard about, but it feels like strikes and the formation of labor unions, um, you know, early on was uh, this huge deal, especially here. Like, I've heard about all the, um, the classic mining um, strikes. And I'm just, I'm just kind of surprised about how that it's still, like we're still in a position where people are having to fight for justice in the workplace. So thanks for doing the reporting, but also I'm, I'm kind of shocked that it's not more prevalent in the news. Yeah, it's been really interesting, especially as someone who like is in the media, seeing which stories get covered and which voices get elevated and which ones don't. I think we've had a pretty kind of unique opportunity over the past couple of years, especially as the pandemic hit, where there has been some discussion of the idea of essential workers. If we remember that five minutes where people were treated good or like where gig work is going, what's happening with Amazon, Starbucks. I think a couple of these organizing campaigns that are a little bit more like, there's a lot more brand awareness, right? Like a lot of people order things from Amazon. A lot of people go to Starbucks or coffee and seeing that there people are organizing there i think that's giving people some hope because people know those are giant corporations with really rich guys on top okay if these guys are doing it maybe we can too but not everyone is getting those headlines or seeing those conversations not everyone's on twitter not everyone reads labor notes not everyone is reading you know necessarily pro-labor publications sometimes the new york times shows up and hands someone with a job a microphone but that's not you know it's a little rare um, we've seen, I think, a lot more interest in worker stories over the past couple of years. And I think we've also seen more journalists and people in the media actively writing about labor and about worker stories. My theory behind that is that uh, since so many of us started unionizing back in 2015, 2016, 2017, and we get laid off all the time, that there are a lot of media people who have been in union jobs or been part of organizing and then got laid off and just kind of scattered like dandelion seeds. So I think there is more pro-union sentiment, at the very least in digital media. But yeah, not everyone has the time to click around to find those stories. It's not on the 10 o'clock news, you know. Local media is a complicated beast, as I'm sure folks here know more than I do. Yeah, it's... I feel like these should be the biggest stories in the country. Like, it should be on the front page whenever a new union starts or a new group of workers goes on strike. Because to me, like, that's, that's what matters. That's what normal working people are doing to take power back and to take care of ourselves. But it seems like the folks who get to write the headlines don't necessarily see it that way. And I'm not sure how to fix that besides, you know taken over but I don't think uh, legacy publications are gonna let the likes of me in there anytime soon so I guess I would just say that trying to find ways to support local media and independent media and just searching out this stuff on your own and sharing it with people and that doesn't you know uh that doesn't fill the hole that like a labor-friendly mass media could but 
if we all do it, then maybe we'll actually get these stories out there and we'll convince the people in charge that people will actually click on this stuff. So maybe they'll hand the microphone over a couple more times, you know? It's, I would love to see like a vibrant labor press that has, you know, magazines and, and publications in every city and town. But there's a, media is in a weird place. So I don't know if we'll have any physical copies, but there's a lot of good stuff on the internet. You just have to work a little harder to find it. Which isn't fair, but if you care, you can find it and share it with your friends. And I want to add, if there's stuff you're not hearing and you want to hear about it, you can always give your give people feedback. <laughs> Say what you what you want. You can if you want 88.7 FM <laughs> to report on things you're interested in. You can always tell us, and, and then Say you'll your know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we love audience feedback, so. Uh, are there are there more questions? Does anyone else have questions or thoughts or? Or is everyone just thinking about the snacks? Spring to mind. Anyone just <laughs> hungry and thinking about snacks? Ooh. I think I guess we answered all the questions. That's great. Sometimes I sometimes people just sort of like bombard me. Like, how do I fix my specific workplace? Like, I don't know. Call <laughs> someone who's local first and then figure it out. <laughs> Oh, but thank you guys so much for coming out. This is really cool. And I'm just really grateful for you guys for coming out to hang out with us and to hear me talk about my my book and listen to the brilliant Katie speak about her experiences, too. Thank you. And I got one quick plug before I think Mandy's going to close us out. But, um, yeah, thank you all again so much for coming. It's so nice to do a community event. I think we're all... Um, it's been a it's been a rough time, and I think we've all felt isolated, and I think it's it's really lovely to be able to get people to show out and all hang out with each other and learn about things together. So thank you. And um, I do want to say, you know, I, you know, I'm sort of trying to do a little journalism at WMMT and um, I've been trying to report on workers issues. I know we hear a lot about coal in this region and I'm definitely interested in that, but I also know we have lots of other workers and lots of other industries. We got our retail workers and our, you know, we got our folks who are on disability and unemployment, which, you know, in its own ways work too. We got, you know, our healthcare workers and teachers and everybody. So um, if you got anything, you know, anybody, any ideas, you know, you're interested in hearing about, you can always drop me a line at, you know, you can message the WMMT Facebook page or Instagram or, you know, we got uh, on our website, we got a little thing, contact form. So you can always drop us a line. Um, and yeah, once again, thank you all so much. And I think Mandy is going to close us out. Yeah. Um, yeah. thank you all for coming and, um, thanks to WMMT for putting this together. And, you know, I, I definitely, um, appreciate this community partnership and I agree with the fact that I know what you guys have gone through since the flooding has to be tough. And the fact that you're still still out here doing the work, um, still out here um, reporting on the, the things that are important in our community means a whole lot. So thank you all for that, and, and including Red Spotted Newt. Um, and hopefully we can do this again in the future. I think this, uh, I feel like it makes a good pair. I hope you all feel the same way. And thank you so much to Kim for coming and um, hope you have enjoyed your time here. Thanks for tuning in to Mountain Talk. You've been listening to Kim Kelly and myself as we spoke about her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. 
I'm Katie Myers. If you liked this episode, you can download it as a podcast from SoundCloud or check it out at WMMT.org. Tune in to our public affairs programming every Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m. From all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening. <laughs>